Well, welcome to Mad Dogs and the Englishman. For the sake of brevity, we will today uh, miss our customary weather report. The Englishman part of it will be curtailed, at least uh, on this. Well, I was about to say overcast Wednesday, but that would sort of undermine my initial point. So we'll go straight into it, and uh, I shall ask Kevin what he thinks about this morning's big Supreme Court decision. Well, gosh, the Supreme Court came down with a shocking decision that Americans can dispose of their own property the way they want to, including in furtherance of their political beliefs. So uh, I think it's the right decision. I'm mad that it was 5-4 instead of 9-0 to zero because spending your own money the way you want to to further your uh, views under the First Amendment seems like a fairly fundamental part of our constitutional order. But, of course, you've got the Democrats out there doing their usual circus act and clown show about, oh dear, look at the big money ruining the economy, uh, these evil Koch brothers, evil Karl Rove and all that. So uh, I prepared a little post for the corner, and I looked up the 20 largest overall donors in uh, big money evil politics right now. Do you want to guess which party the majority of them are affiliated with? I'm pretty sure it's the Democratic Party. <laughs> yeah, it is. In fact, they give 62% of their money overall to the Democrats. And so if you look at the top 20 list or the top 25 list, you're not going to see the NRA or Charles Koch or David Koch or any of their organizations or anything else on it. Number one is a company called FAR, which is a couple of hedge fund guys uh, in California who give 100% of their money to the Democrats, and that's to the tune of more than $11 million in the current cycle. Number two is people affiliated with the city of New York. After that, the Democratic Governors Association, the Teachers Union, the Carpenters Union, the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees, AFL-CIO, the National Association of Realtors, who, of course, are one of the few or relatively few Republican-leaning groups, and they're awful, and I, I dislike them. Uh, but then you got the Electricians Union, AT&T goes Republican, Lockheed Martin goes Republican, uh, defense contractors and people with those sorts of interests tend to. Comcast, strongly Democratic. Engineers Union, you're going to take a guess. Northrop Grumman is next on the list. They go slightly Republican, 57 to 43. Lawyers, American Association of Justice, 96% to 4 in favor of the Democrats. Honeywell, another Republican firm, 58 to 42. Boeing, 57 to 43 for Republicans. Uh, Vote Sane, which is a uh, conservative political pack, uh, 70% to 30%. What's interesting is that the ones that go Republican don't go as strongly Republican as the ones that go Democrat go strongly Democrat with the exception of the next one on the list, which is called Every Republican is Crucial Pack. And uh, they, of course, give 100% of their money to Republicans. And number 20 on the list is the Laborers Union, which is 90-10 in favor of the Democrats. So no Charles Koch, no Karl Rove, none of that stuff. And uh, the Democrats are, shall we say, asking the justices to vote against their own interests. Yeah, well, there's a certain irony, I think, in that this morning this Supreme Court decision has yielded 10,000 Democratic fundraising emails I'll show you <laughs> yes. sort of the, the way in which the, uh, the issue is, is leveraged for political gain. But I think what I'm perplexed about uh, is the reflexive way in which this decision has, has yielded the usual arguments about money in politics, not just because of what you've just said and not just because, in my view, money in politics is wildly overrated. I don't really believe that it works especially well. There was $6 billion spent on the last election and uh, it basically returned the status quo, changed a couple of Senate seats uh, yeah. marginally as well. 
Um, but I'm perplexed as to why this particular case is annoying people so much. I mean, I understand the general argument. I don't agree with it, but I understand the general argument against money in politics. I understand why people are irritated with Citizens United. I understand uh, that people would prefer it if uh, we lived in a country uh, in which there was, say, public funding of elections. I'm staunchly against that, but I understand the argument, public funding uh, of conventions, and so on and so forth. But what this has done is strike down the overall campaign contribution limit. It didn't change how much you can give to a particular candidate. And it's yeah, not... How many candidates you can give to. Right, and it's not Citizens United. Now, really, in, in, in leaving the principled argument to one side, the consequences of a decision like this seem to be to weaken the PACs and super PACs that we're told are shadowy and evil and unaccountable, and to strengthen the political parties and the individual candidates that we're told should have more of a say. I'm surprised that the left hasn't said, yes, we're still really angry about money in politics. But actually, given that there is money in politics, this is quite a good step. Yeah, you know, I'm enough of an institutionalist that I sympathize with the argument that the uh, political parties uh, should be strengthened, especially relative to things like the New York Times and uh, evening comedy shows and things like that, which have, you know, essentially unrestricted ability to influence politics. I think what you're looking at here is really the cultural consequences of basically a conspiracy theory. Yes. That there are a lot of people on the left and a fair number of people on the right who really believe that the way American politics operates is that, that it's dominated by some secret cabal of Washington insiders and corporate executives who meet somewhere and exchange large bags of money, and that's how things unfold. And it's not as though there aren't corporate special interests, and it's not as though they aren't successful in getting favors. Uh, but this sort of stuff tends to happen in the pu in public, you know, in things like the tax code and uh, and that sort of thing. But what politicians really respond to is voters, not bribes. I yeah. have very little actual bribery, which is why the NRA is so effective. But organizations like those, like well, like the Koch brothers organizations, which have been doing their thing since the 70s with very little success, are not because politicians respond to voters. Although you know what really drives me crazy about this. You know, you've got Harry Reid standing there in the Senate denouncing evil, wicked billionaires in Wichita, and then he's going to go home, and as Jay never tires of pointing out, to his apartment in the Ritz-Carlton. Yes, well, he's also... After he's done giving his plutocratic speech. Yeah, he's also going to run a second climate change all-nighter for Tom Steyer, who's a billionaire who happens to back Democrats rather than Republicans. What you just described, though, this conspiracy theory... It really doesn't tend to go too much further than what I've just said about Tom Steyer, which is that they put on a show that, yes, you know, people who are rich have influence while new film at 11. Uh, but what you've just described with the conspiracy is basically an ecumenical version of the Jewish conspiracy, uh, which is yeah. that, that there must be some group of people in the shadows uh, puppeteering uh, and and yielding these outcomes because no one would ever vote like this otherwise. I mean, it's basically predicated upon, firstly, a mistrust of the American people, and secondly, the presumption that uh, those who vote against the interests of the elite class are stupid. And there's, no, yeah. there's no getting around why uh, critics are irritated by the Americans for Prosperity commercials, and that is that they think that the country outside of California and New York 
is full of these malleable rubes who sit at home and were there not commercials on television instructing them how to think, would wake up and vote uh, their own interests. And it's pretty amusing that the Koch brothers are from Kansas, given that the famous phrase to describe what I'm talking about is, what's the matter with Kansas? But nobody seems to have thought for a moment that it might be that there are voters in Kansas and Kentucky and Alabama who, yes, don't have too much money, but either have a principled attachment to American liberty or who perhaps are genuinely more interested in questions like abortion than they are the tax rate and maybe realize that generally capitalism has been good for poor people in the world and it's led to their standard of living. But no, we have to believe that it's because they see a commercial on television and are brainwashed. Yeah, one last point on this is that people on the left always say, well, money isn't speech. It shouldn't count that way. We shouldn't think of it that way. So we have under the First Amendment freedom of the press. And I used to be a newspaper editor. Do you know what a press costs? Yeah, an awful lot of money. About, about $20 million for a, uh, for a decent newspaper press. Um, so it's like saying, well, you can have freedom of the press, but you're only allowed to spend $1,000 on it. Well, then you essentially don't have it. What we overlook and what the left intentionally overlooks in this argument is that all this money is going toward communication, basically. It's going toward communication with voters. It's going toward communications with members of Congress and political campaigns and trying to influence the outcome of elections and policy disputes. It's precisely the thing that the First Amendment is there to protect. You know, the First Amendment is – I mean, I, I believe in First Amendment coverage for things like pornography and that sort of stuff, but that's not what it's there for. You know, it was not written in the Constitution to make sure that uh, we could have, you know, liberal laws about things like obscenity and things like that. It had to do with political speech. It goes back to Milton and the idea that a free market and ideas will, in the end, produce better policy results and better politics. So this is right in the middle of what the First Amendment is there for. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, all the other sort of stuff that we attach to it. And so you've got this weird thing under, you know, the the would-be controllers of campaign finance where the First Amendment protects things like, you know, strip clubs in New Jersey, but not someone interested in politics trying to put out a message to communicate his political interests. Yes, and as she was speaking, I thought, really, the left has it both ways on this question because when we say not subsidizing something is not the same as banning it, say contraception. Mm. Leftists tell us, well, effectively, if people can't achieve uh, the purchase of contraception on their own, then it is beyond their grasp. And there's no material difference between it's being banned and access to it being restricted. This access word comes up an awful lot. And yet, as you've just established, I mean... I don't have access as a, as a normal person outside of National Review. Anyway, I don't have access to a printing press. Mm. I mean, if I'm, if I'm not a National Review employee, if I leave tomorrow and start my own business and become a cake maker uh, who caters gay weddings, then, <laughs> then I'm going to lose that access. So why is there not a, why is there not a consistent principle here? Well, I think that is an excellent point and probably the right one to end on. You're off to Detroit, is that correct? I am. I am. I'm going to talk to the students at Wayne State tomorrow at 2 p.m. about conservatism and how I think the press should operate. All right. And uh, I guess all of the conservatives in Detroit can call carpool over there with you? Cause... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
All three uh, well, the relevant question, of course, is, you know, are, uh, is there reciprocity? Are you allowed to carry in Michigan? I am. I am. But I'm, I'm not going to. So if anyone wants to kill me, no. Because um, it's a pain to fly with a gun. It, it's obviously uh, legal to, to fly with a gun under federal law, but uh, New York doesn't observe that uh, law. It uh, has decided, the only place in the country, that it only applies to cars. And so none of LaGuardia, JFK, or Westchester airports will allow me to pick up the gun or take the gun through. So yes, I'd be fine to carry it in Michigan. Detroit airport would have no problem with it. None of the connecting airports would, but New York's decided that it doesn't really like federal law, so it will interpret it in a way that nullifies it. So what you're saying is you have a Second Amendment right, but no access. Uh, that's, that's a nice way of putting it. Talk to you later, Charlie. Bye-bye.